is um, 1 Chronicles 17, 11 to 15. It says, When your days are over and you go to bed with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish your, his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, as we've opened the scriptures, Lord, would your spirit bring revelation to our hearts as we open our lives before you now. I pray words of comfort, truth, and light would fill us and shine through us as we go into this week and into the future. We'd go with you. Amen. So here we are in the third week of Advent, fifth week, oh it's revving up, literally, fifth week, it was good wasn't it, fifth week of our sermon series, the final week of our sermon series on David, not David Clegg, Uh, he's at the back, uh, banished to the back of the room, Uh, but King David from the Old Testament, we've looked at the shepherd king, the victorious king, the singing king, the waiting king, and today uh, the future king, which sounds a bit sci-fi, but anyway, it is the future king. I saw the king on Thursday, which isn't a sort of a Christian metaphor for Jesus, actually King Charles III. I and a couple of others here actually were at a carol service in King's Cross with KXC, who we partner with, and the king walked in, and there are two things that struck me. Firstly, King Charles III is actually quite an ordinary-looking man. Like if you saw him just reading the paper on the tube, you wouldn't necessarily... Like, the whole dress thing, the queen wearing the special dresses, like, she, you know, looked a little bit more distinct. He actually was wearing an ordinary suit, and he's actually a fairly ordinary-looking guy. The second thing that struck me was the way people treated him was not ordinary. There was a moment, and I didn't see it, but I watched back a video that was like the official press thing, where he just takes off his coat like this, and he puts it to the side and then just drops it like this, knowing full well that there'll be someone there to grab it. And one of his like, private secretaries sees it, leaps forward just in time, grabs it. Maybe she's new to the job, not quite sure. She doesn't really know what to do. It's like, I've got the king's coat. And so she just gives it to someone else, one of his um, private sort of protection officers there. He's like, this is not my job. Gives it to someone else. He's like, well, it's not my job. And you see them all come in as entourage. Like, I don't want this coat. It comes back to the woman <laughs> that had it in the first place. So then she's, she, she's got the coat. He's actually quite an ordinary person but people treat him in an extraordinary way. And there's something strange, isn't there, about saying there's just this person that we mark out for the special office. And as we've grappled with this series on David, we've had to grapple with that reality that kings and queens are marked out for special purposes, but they're still human. And it's hard work, isn't it, going back into the Iron Age, 
don't know if you found that. Reading the Old Testament, it's not the easier things. You go back and the things that you read are, you know, scary, odd, or seemingly downright bad. But actually, the story of David tumbles forward. And it tumbles forward into the story of Jesus and Jesus to the church. And that's why we said we'd do this, because actually at Christmas, many of our carols and many of our Bible readings uh, are full of the person, David, and his hometown and his dad. and all. Can you just get that little basket that uh, I forgot again? Um, uh, so Christmas is full of David. And I remember just at the beginning saying, I want you to have a happy Christmas. I want, I want us to, to celebrate Christmas fully. I want us to understand Christmas. But it feels like you need to understand David to understand Christmas because he's everywhere. And we're going to prove it tonight. So basically what we're going to do, <clears throat> take a cough, get ready, because there's a little bit of congregational involvement. I'm going to name a line from a Christmas carol, okay? You've got to shout out and name the carol. Thank you very much. And if you do, you get a gold coin. And then, if someone will sing the first line of that carol, you get two. Okay? You ready? All right. So the first line is, and you have to name what carol it comes from. The first line that I want to reference is, O Little Town of Bethlehem, which comes from the carol... Yeah, 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 good. Easy one. It was the obvious answer. Anyone want to sing it? First line? Go on. Done. That's two coins. Next one. Uh, Once in Royal David City comes from the carol. Yeah, well done. Quick. The obvious answer is the right answer. Who wants to sing it? He never got to see the solo as a kid. Oh, here he is. Don, Don, very good, very good. Okay, two easy ones. That was just to get us warmed up. We're going to get a bit more challenging now. Uh, some of you have been waiting. You think, I know that. That's too easy. I'm not going to waste my opportunity. Uh, ring out those bells tonight, Bethlehem, Bethlehem. Excellent. Very good, very good. Who wants to sing the first line? Yeah, very, well, go on, keep going. You, little dog. Yeah, very good, very good. Um, we'll do a couple more. Get a bit, gets a bit harder now. Uh, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Yeah, he's quick. He's got that. Go on, sing it. Go on, T, for that. Um, uh, gets much harder now. That was in the face, was it? Sorry. Uh, apologies. Key of David. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's in there. It's in there. It's in there. It gets there. She's collecting. Um, and actually, you sang as well, Anna. Um, <laughs> so, um, oh, come ye, oh, come ye to Bethlehem. Oh, on the front row. The music team nailing it. Who wants to sing it? Yeah, it's good. Last one, last one. Thou rod of Jesse. Oh, harder. Harder. Yeah, there's one before, yeah, okay, very good, very good. Um, and uh, you sang it. Um, okay, the, we get the point. They're full, they're about 30 or so. Bethlehem, I've decided, is the most frequent David uh, reference, but his dad, Jesse, his name, his town, everything. So tonight, we, I thought, let's, we want to understand David, that's the point, right? So we want to understand Jesus, and to understand Jesus, we want to understand David. Because the whole of the, the Old Testament is important. It's hard to go back into the Old Testament, but it tumbles forward into Jesus and through us. And in fact, the New Testament only understands itself by the Old Testament. So if you don't understand the Old Testament story, you don't understand the New Testament. It's like going to the final scene of a play 
and there's a great plot twist, but you actually were late, and it just doesn't feel very twisty to you, because you just don't know the plot, so it's like, oh, I don't want to get the twist. You need to understand how the New Testament is a massive plot twist, because you have to understand the old. And so this is just an example this year of why we should do that, more generally, but in this case, by understanding David, we're going to understand something about Christmas. And of the many references, I just want to take two, two lines from two counts, explain what they mean, and for each, actually give three things we can do as a response. So if you really like number and order, there's two lines and two carols, and each has three. If you don't, then, uh, sorry, um, it's still there. Uh, so anyway, the first line is one of those weirder ones, that rod of Jesse from O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And that, for me, is probably my favourite carol. It's more of an Advent thing, really, but it's just so haunting. It makes me cry more often than not. And it's from that ancient worship called the O Antiphons that we actually, the choir sang a few weeks ago. And this haunting melody that we sing, the words full of longing and hoping. Let's return just for a moment to the reading that we heard just now. This is Nathan coming to David. David at the peak of his powers. He's just nailed it, basically. He's become king in Jerusalem. He's built a palace, and now he's building a temple for God. And Nathan comes to him and says, rather, you're great, King David. He says, I'm going to point behind you. God's words are pointing beyond your life, David. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. One of your own sons, I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him, as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. Nathan brought this revelation to David in the moment of his success and said, God's words are beyond your life to an eternal perspective. And since the beginning of the church, we've understood these words to be fulfilled in Jesus. David's life pointed beyond his own life to something else, the coming of Jesus. And that rod of Jesse is a line from a come come Emmanuel that's going to help us to see how this plays out. Just a reminder, who was Jesse? David's dad, Exactly. And the word rod is not a helpful thing, because like many old carols, it's actually a word that we don't no, no longer use. It's actually an old word for root. And in Isaiah 11, which is basically where O Come, O Come, Emmanuel gets these words from, it says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. And then that's verse one, a few verses later, it says, in that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. So this is in the book of Isaiah. Jesse is the root and the branches are his descendants. In verse 10, the word stump there, uh, it, it, the word root is like dead stump, like a dead tree. And to get the power and the point of Isaiah's message, his picture, I just want to rehearse the story for you. The, the basic predicament that God has elected a people to carry his name and his purpose. That's the beginning of the story in Genesis with, with Abraham. But it keeps going wrong over and over again. And eventually the people think a king might be a good idea. 
I know, let's try something, let's have a king. God says it's a bad idea, but the people say, well, let's try a king. King Saul, let's make him. He's like big and tall and handsome and great, so King Saul would be a good idea. It goes really badly. So they try again with David. And the hope is that David will be different from Saul, and he is, is to a certain extent. But he's also flawed in the same way all of us are, in the same way Saul was. He's riddled with the same sickness of just simple human failure. And so David's life, although full of promise, is also full of misery as he messes up. And we looked at that last week. And if you spend any time, like I said, in the difficult world of the Old Testament, you see that the, the heroes are actually failures more than heroes so often. And they lead to dead stumps. Now, three centuries or so of of terrible kings, David's descendants, the branches that came out of the root of Jesse, now lead us to Isaiah. And he's at the hinterland of, of basically the end of that story of kings failing and failing and failing. And Isaiah's life transitions and his prophecy transitions the end of that era and the beginning of the next but he views to what's beyond. The end of the era of the kings was the exile, when the people were judged and and, and the Babylonians invaded the the land that had been given to the people and they were carried off to exile. And Isaiah's prophecy speaks of that time as the the deadness, as the dead stump of, of David's descendants, the broken dreams. And then his, his prophecy transitions to the time when they were actually carried to exile, to Babylon. And so by the end of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is dreaming with prophetic imagination of, of what's beyond. And what he sees is the figure of one who will fulfill all that was lost in the promise of David. Because God is faithful. Why did he, he join with Abraham's family only for this to end in disaster? And so Isaiah sees not just a dead stump of a tree, but as we just heard, as you see on the screen, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. What he sees is not just a dead stump, but green shoots. He sees the beginning of something else. His life transitions, the the deadest moment of the, the era of the kings, but then sees beyond to... A green shoot. It's Leonard where, where there's a garden, where the community is emerging. You'll see this. A tree was cut down. And already around it, these shoots have grown up and it's actually uncontrollable. It's going to have to be cut down again. From death there comes life. The broken dreams of David will be reborn and won. And Isaiah starts to trace the face of the one who is the green shoot. One that's like David, but without all the problems. And goes even further in the blessing and the power of Israel to be a light to all people. And if you read carefully the long book of Isaiah, you see that the prophecy traces the face of an individual that fulfills this. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The fulfillment of this prophecy, the face that Isaiah traces in his imagination of the future, the green shoot that is to come out of a dead stump, it's Mary's boy, it's Jesus. 
But Isaiah cries hope and, and speaks the future from a place of despair at the, at the place of destruction. And that is the Advent season. To speak hope even though we are surrounded by despair. To speak of the light whilst there's still darkness. But it's a moment of just seizing the green shoot that comes out of a dead stump. Those moments of hope amongst difficulty. Like in a blazing desert, which is about as far as you can imagine from obviously today's climate. A cloud just suddenly covers the sun and just for a moment you get relief. Or on a day like today, you're walking through the wilderness and you've seen nothing and, and there's nothing for no one. And then suddenly the next valley is not abandoned, but there's a little bit of not mist but smoke. And there's a house with a fire and the promise of warmth. That makes more sense today, doesn't it? Or the darkness is giving way to just a glimmer of the dawn on the horizon. It's Advent. We cry for hope even though there's despair. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. That's what Isaiah says. And as Christians, our hope is founded in one thing is the resurrection. The fact that this story, the story of Jesus, what we remember with Jesus' coming was not just his coming as a baby, but his life, his death, and he rose again. And in beating death, we have a reason to have hope. Because if the resurrection is taking root, then the branches and the life that will grow out of Jesus is undefeatable. The resurrection is the hope that we have and, and it's the hope that we live with. It's the reality that as the church we live and breathe. It's our, not a, just a, oh, maybe things will get better. We look at the evidence. We weigh it up. We lean our life on the person of Jesus. And if it's true and he beat death, there's nothing to fear. So just like I said, three things for this line. Thou rod of Jesse that we can do. Firstly, grieve what has died. Isaiah's gift to us is that he calls a stump a stump. <laughs> he calls dead, dead. He calls night, night. The cold, cold. The heat, the heat. And there's a moment for us to be honest about what in our lives feels dead. A job, a relationship. It can be anything. The second thing is to believe in the resurrection as people of hope. I said our hope is only founded in the fact that Jesus died and rose again. Lean your life on the resurrection. And if you're full of doubt, like many of us are most of the time, figure out how you can bed more into this church, how you can bed more into relationships, how you can do something like Alpha to explore the questions of the Christian faith. Because the resurrection, everything hinges on that. You know, we're able, and this is the very Advent thing that we do at this time, is think about the end of the world. If it's true that Jesus rose from the grave, if eternally death is beaten, and that by leaning our life on Jesus, we can have hope even beyond the grave, if that's true, then everything else is secondary. Everything else is just afterthoughts. Even though it's hard, it doesn't make the other pain and sickness and sadness that we all suffer in this life, it doesn't make it trivial, not at all. But it does make it secondary. If death itself is beaten, we can view any other challenge 
that we're facing as a secondary factor. If your life is held by the creator of the universe and your death will not be the end, everything else is secondary. Believing in the resurrection gives us confidence to live in a different way. So grieve what has died, believe in the resurrection, and lastly, beg to differ. There's a great um, Michael Mitten. It's about this first century phrase. It says, when you light the lamps in the evening, you say to the darkness, I beg to differ. He records someone saying that the hope is daring, courageous. It has the audacity to reach a hand into the darkness and to come out with a handful of light. To reach the hand in the darkness and to come out with a handful of light. To beg to differ, to grieve what has died, to believe in the resurrection and then to beg to differ, to live in defiance of the darkness. We, we do this symbolically by lighting candles. But if someone looked at your life, how would they say it defies the darkness? If someone looked at your calendar, how would they say you're living on the side of the resurrection? They looked at your bank balance. How would they say this person is riddled with the cure, not just the sickness of humanity? They're riddled with Jesus. They're overcome by the Holy Spirit. Their calendar is distinct and different from the way of the world. Their bank balance is transformed. This is the real stuff of life. This is when it really shows up for us. How do our lives defy the darkness? So don't give up in hope at this point. Do something different. What can you plant, you know, physically? It's a great time to plant. What a hopeful thing. Find a bit of green space. Go to St. Leonard's. Put something deep underground that will burst forth in the spring. What can you plan and put in the diary that says, I believe in the resurrection. My life is held by the eternal God. My death is not the end. And so for the darkness that now lives, for the loneliness and separation, for the inequality and injustice that surround us, I'm going to beg to differ. I'm going to do something that scares the darkness. Has the world heard your defiant roar of hope? Have you been overcome, like me, so often, just by the humdrum of what is? That rod of Jesse... We grieve what has died, the stumps. We believe in the resurrection, the green shoots, and we beg to differ. We defy the darkness. And you'll be pleased to know that the second line is much shorter. (laughs) The second line, once in royal David's city. We all know where that comes from. We've established that, the carol. Well done. So what was royal David's city? What was the city? What was the name of the city? Jerusalem, right? Surely? Surely that's where, where the king, king lives in the palace in Jerusalem. That's where Herod sat. But no. Once in all David's city stood a lowly cattle shed. It's a little town of Bethlehem. It's not Jerusalem. When we remember where Jesus was born, we remember where it was David was anointed. Do you remember the dramatic moment in the first week of the series with the oil, when I poured out the oil? When Samuel, at the dead end, the dead stump of Saul's reign, when it came to its end, was called by God to go to Bethlehem, a nowhere town. Why Bethlehem? And to find Jesse and, and, and to anoint one of his sons the next king. And so the good-looking son came out, the intelligent son. Not this one, God said. Not this one, not this one, not this one. And then God says, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so Samuel says to Jesse, have you got another son? He's like, well, there is the runt. And that's literally the translation. The kid. The nobody from a nowhere town. 
you're in Bethlehem, so you know, we don't have anyone too impressive, but I've shown you all the impressive ones. But there is, there is David, and God says that's the one. And when we journey with the Magi, you know, the, the wise men, the three kings, whatever uh, you call them, we remember those that came from afar, and they came from Revelation looking for a king. And they came first, as you'll see on the screen, to Jerusalem, because that's where you go to look for kings, because that's where King Herod lives. And they ask, we've been sent to find a king, so we came here. But as it goes on, if we go to the next verses, you'll see that they listened to the prophets. And the hope was that someone would come like David, so it would be from from David's town, from Bethlehem. The star took them to Jerusalem, but through Jerusalem to Bethlehem. The star was God's revelation to them. Jerusalem was an obvious place to go, but it wasn't the end. As Sam Wells says, wisdom will get you to Jerusalem, but only revelation will get you to Bethlehem. Revelation, something you can only know from God, revealed through the Spirit, by prayer, prophecy, through the Scriptures. For the wise men, it's the star, and that's why we have a star there, if you have a look. It's reminders of the journey that we're on in Advent and Christmas and into Epiphany. That wisdom will get you to Jerusalem, but only revelation will get you to Bethlehem. They're only six miles apart. I've been to both. But they're a world apart. Bethlehem was a nowhere town at David's time, and it was a nowhere town at Jesus' time. Jerusalem was the place of power, the place of palaces, where the king's throne was. Power, popularity, external religious devotion, political influence, that's all the shiny things that I think so many and so much of us are still tempted by today. Jerusalem was where the wise men went, but not where they stayed. They went through Jerusalem following the star. All their research, their study, Prayer, meditation, discipline, spreadsheets, strategy, that got them to Jerusalem. Spreadsheets will get you to Jerusalem, but only revelation will get you to Bethlehem. What's Jerusalem for you? What's the place that's close but actually so far? So far from where God is. Jerusalem's a comfortable place if you're trying to look for power and influence. If you're looking for success, for respectability. But we've got distracted and we've forgotten the David story when we end up in Jerusalem. That God picks people based on the character of their hearts, their devotion, not on the externals. So what's Bethlehem for you? What's the place where God's lurking? So three things we can do. Once in Royal David City, three things. Firstly, look up. If you're seeking revelation, create some space, some headspace to hear from God. Don't look at the around. For me, let's use a spreadsheet analogy. If you just keep staring at the same numbers over and over again, nothing changes. You keep doing the same things, and this is so much for, I'm sure you can, you can, you can associate with what I experience. Effort doesn't always affect outcome. So much of my life, I try and do the same things. I try harder, try harder. It doesn't always affect outcome, particularly when I'm trying to follow Jesus. Create some space and look up. Be like the wise men, pondering, searching, 
looking for God. This Christmas, we'll all have so many things in the diary, but there will be downtimes. There will be moments to chill. And Netflix is a great option, but maybe there's more. Maybe now decide, put aside a day. You know you've got a few days booked off. What can, can I put aside an afternoon to really look to God, to search the scriptures? Maybe invite a friend to be part of that and to pray with you. So look up and then look beyond because you've got to go through Jerusalem but find beyond to look in the unlikely places, the place where Jesus himself would hang out, often with those that are unsuccessful and not full of power. Go to the unlovely places, the forgotten places, the nowhere towns. Look up and then look beyond what is just now. Look what's down the path, what's, what's further. Great time, isn't it, this time of year to plan, to think, to conspire with God, to look beyond the here and now. Put things in the diary that defy the darkness. So look up, look beyond, and lastly, live unreasonably. Strategy would have led them to Jerusalem. Revelation led them to Bethlehem. What part of your life looks a bit funny? What part of your life would be made fun of? Oh, that's a stupid decision. You know, even just what you do on a Sunday, prioritising that we gather together, without what we believe is such a weird thing to do on a Sunday night. You could be ironing your shirts or whatever, you, you know, watching The Crown or whatever you, I don't know, whatever you like. I'm watching The tra- Traitors. So if anyone wants to talk about that, I'm mildly obsessed with Traitors, if, if anyone's a fan. But anyway, that's a complete tangent just came into my head. Live unreasonably. Live beyond Jerusalem. What is it that people would most question and almost snigger about your life? Well, that's a bit of a dumb thing, but I think God calls us to do things. Love is an obvious option. It's a total waste of time. If you really love someone and you act and you show that love, it's a total waste of time. It's not efficient. It's not productive. It doesn't have a great return, love. Particularly when you love people that aren't easy to love. Children. (laughs) My daughter doesn't seem to be particularly bothered whether I love her or not. She just assumes. She doesn't say thank you. The most loving things can feel like such a waste of time particularly if if people aren't thankful. Bigger things, what you do with your career, what you do with your money, what you do with your desires. What part of your life, it looks slightly unreasonable, like the the wise men say, well, we're actually following a star, not strategy, not spreadsheets, not wisdom. And for us, you know, actually, if I'm being really honest, Lulu and I are here because of revelation, not because of wisdom. Our story in the five years leading up to being in Bow, I think prepared us to take risks, prepared us to do things. But many had disagreed with me. Many said, oh, this doesn't quite fit. This isn't actually the sort of church you're... Somebody even say, they said, you know, it's in the middle of a road. <laughs> you know, that's not an obvious place to build a church. It's like, well, the church was probably here before the road, but, that, but that's another point. If I'm honest, our whole decision to be here and still to be here is, is on more revelation than wisdom. Which part of your life looks most unreasonable, most questionable? Can we take some more risks together next year? It'd be good, wouldn't it? If we did some more unreasonable things as a church that defy the darkness. So bringing it together, that rod of Jesse, actually a picture of resurrection. 
picture of hope where, where we have space, though, to grieve what's dead, to look at the stump, look at the sad story of the Old Testament or the sad stories in our own lives. That's actually just a dead end. To grieve what has died, to believe in the resurrection and then to beg to differ as we defy the darkness. And once in Royal David's city, teach us to look up, not just around, but to look up, to create space for revelation beyond resurrection. And then to look beyond, beyond Jerusalem to Bethlehem, and then to live unreasonably. And as we go into the end of this year and we, we come together uh, again in January, I pray for more of this for us. I long for more of this attitude. Not just church's attendance, but the message of that what we've just looked at together would live in our veins. That we would bleed this for both. That our lives would defy the darkness. That people would question and say, well, that looks a bit strange. But this wouldn't just be attendance. This would be our whole lives together for Jesus. Would you stand? I want to pray for us. I'm going to invite um, Anna and Jesus. Just an opportunity, just in the silence now, just invite God's spirit to come into your own heart. Let's ask God together. That Jesus, you would come and, and, and what you've been saying to us together, you'd, you'd say something specific to each of us. Invite your presence, Lord, to empower us to live out your word. Come, Holy Spirit.